Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another one of our AUA Office of Education podcasts. Today's podcast is on PSA screening USPSTF recommendation. I'm delighted to have with us as my co-host, Dr. David Penson, who is Professor and Chair of Urology at Vanderbilt University, and he is also the Chair-Elect of the Science and Quality for the AUA. David, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Victor. It's good to be here. Always good to speak to you. You know, things have changed when it comes to PSA screening and our uh, uh, governmental recommendations for PSA screening. And I, I was wondering if you could just take us through, uh, first, before we even get to the changes, what is the USPSTF and why does what they say matter? Yeah, so it really has been a bumpy ride the last uh, five to ten years with PSA screening, and a big part of it is due to this governmental agency called the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or USPSTF. Now, you know, it's interesting because as urologists, you know, we don't think much about this. Um, there are other government agencies we're much more focused on, and USPSTF until fairly recently was not one that we, we thought much about. But in the last few years, it's really taken on a new role. What USPSTF is, is that it's an it's a expert panel appointed by the government uh, of experts in preventive medicine, primary care, and evidence-based medicine, and their job is to develop recommendations for primary care clinicians on the appropriate content of periodic uh, health examinations. It's been around since 1984, actually. People don't realize that. And since 1990, it's been under the auspices of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, although they really are almost uh, independent of ARC. They have 16 members, um, and they, like I said, they come from primary care and preventive medicine. Right now, for example, there's an obstetrics and gynecology uh, physician on it. There are a whole bunch of primary care docs and, and a, a few folks in family medicine, et cetera, pediatrics. What they do is they conduct scientific evidence reviews uh, across all these clinical preventive services, and they develop recommendations for the healthcare community, and they're really geared towards the primary care community. They use a grading system uh, of A through um, uh, D with an additional one, I. Uh, and, and so it's worth just thinking about what that means. If you get an A or B, that means they recommend the service, uh, and uh, that's really sort of the, the, the gold standard in the letter that I think if you get it, you're, you're all set. Uh, if you get an A, it means that there's high certainty that the benefit is substantial. If you get a B, it means they recommend the service and there's high certainty that the benefit is moderate or moderate certainty that the benefit is high. When you get below A or B, it gets a little bit uh, uh, more ambiguous. C means that they recommend selectively offering and providing the service to individual patients based on their professional judgment or patient preferences. Uh, and basically, they're saying, they think the benefit is small and they're moderately certain. If you get a D, that's bad. It means they recommend against the service because there's either no benefit to the service or the harms outweigh the benefits. And, of course, there's this sort of we don't know uh, category I, which uh, means there's insufficient evidence to make a recommendation. Now, if we go back uh, in time, uh, and I won't go all the way back to 2002 when USPSDF started thinking about uh, PSA screening, I will say in 2008, they gave uh, screening for men under age 75 an I and men over age 75 a D. 
And we were okay with that. I mean, it made some sense. Uh, in 2012, they made a big change. They gave all prostate cancer screening a D. And part of that is because they really are tied to using randomized clinical trials. And so for five years, we sat at this D, and we can talk a little bit about the trials. And then earlier this year, they came out with their draft recommendation, which means it's not final yet. They invite uh, comment. And they gave men under age 70, uh, uh, they gave screening in men under age 70 a C, which is a major change, and it's a positive change, and left uh, screening for men over age 70 at a D. Now, I think a lot of urologists say, fine, who cares? It's just a bunch of primary care docs. But the USPSDF has some sway in 2017. It's all related to Obamacare or the ACA. And the reason I say that is, is that if the, if the USPSDF gives a service an A or a B, Medicare is required to cover the service without any copay whatsoever. And that sort of, you know, puts it on a, a pedestal, that service. If it gets a CD or an I, Medicare can collect a copay, and it potentially opens the door to non-coverage of the service, particularly if it gets a D. I think that's what was so alarming about the 2012 recommendation. We're in a good place in 2017 now, and I'm pleased, um, but we have to keep a close eye on things. So I got a, a couple of questions. Um, First of all, uh, relating to why in 2012 that D recommendation uh, was given when that seems to be contrary to what most of the urologic community would, um, would think or would recommend. And then between 2012 and 2017, what, if any, effect did that uh, grade D um, have on, uh, on, on screening and even on uh, patients and mortality, et cetera. I don't know that we have that data, but uh, I'm just curious to hear that. So first of all, you know, why a D when that seems so contrary to what we as urologists think? Yeah, and it goes back to something I said a little bit earlier about the quality of the evidence that USPSCF uses. Uh, the task force is very focused on randomized clinical trial, level one evidence. And well, I think as urologists and clinicians, we look and say, well, that's one piece of the puzzle, but it's certainly not the only piece of the puzzle. You know, for people who are, you know, steeped in epidemiology, which is quite different than clinical medicine when you really get down to it, you know, they look at some of the studies that we look and say, wow, that's common sense. Um, and they say, well, we can't use those studies because there are other things going on. And I'm specifically referring, when I say that, to the studies looking at uh, incidence rates and mortality rates in prostate cancer um, since, SEER, uh, since PSA screening was introduced. So if you look at the SEER data, which is large population-based data in the U.S., and you follow it from 1992 to 1993 out to now, you'll see this decline in prostate cancer mortality um, that occurs right after screening is introduced. And as urologists, we look at that and we say, okay, that's proof that this is working. And the epidemiologists and the, you know, methodologists who work with the task force look and say, well, there are a lot of other things going on, uh, and it may have something to do with screening, but that's not all there is, and we can't make a conclusion. And from a purely epidemiologic public health perspective, that's not completely wrong. But what I do fault them for a little bit, uh, maybe more than a little bit, in fact, is how they interpreted the randomized clinical trials in 2012. And so there are two big randomized clinical trials, and I think a lot of urologists are aware of these. And urologists look at these and they say they're imperfect trials, and they are. 
The first is a PLCO trial, the prostate lung cancer and ovarian screening trial and prevention trial, which was an American trial. This is a really large study carried on in the United States in the 1990s. In the prostate arm, there are roughly 75,000 to 80,000 men in the study. Uh, and if you look at this uh, study, men were randomized to either screening versus standard of care, and that's a key point, standard of care. And with 13 years follow-up, there's no advantage to screening. Now, one of the things I think the, the, the task force failed to appreciate with PLCO was the fact that the control arm was extremely contaminated. There was a lot of screening uh, in the control arm, and this biased the study to the null. So in that regard, urologists looked at that, and they dismissed the study, whereas the task force still kept it in play. The other study, which I think is a more important study, and frankly a better done study, is the ERSPC study, which is the European study of prostate cancer screening. This is a large European study of eight study centers across Europe, and this does show a survival advantage. Screening, however, didn't have a huge advantage. It resulted in one less prostate cancer death per 1,000 men compared to the control arm. And the number needed to detect, that is the number of additional cancer cases we had to detect to prevent one cancer death was 27. And that's not really a strong effect. And so in the end, if you look at the RSPC, uh, it's, it shows a benefit, but not a huge benefit. And that drove the task force to say, well, there may be a benefit, but it's small. And there are a lot of risks involved with prostate cancer screening. And we can talk about that in a second. But the one thing urologists will say when they look at the RSPC is they'll say, well, what about the Gothenburg Center? And Gothenburg was one of the eight centers in the RSPC, and it was profoundly positive. Um, these men were screened from age 50 to age 64, and what they found was uh, if they were screened, it reduced the relative risk of dying from prostate cancer by 44%, and that number needed to detect was much lower. It was 12 uh, to, uh, cases to prevent one prostate cancer death. It's okay for urologists to look at that and pull that out and say, well, look how positive this is. But if we're going to do that, we also have to look at the other seven remaining sites in the RSPC. And while the Rotterdam site was positive, it wasn't nearly as positive. And the other six sites showed no advantage. So when USPSTF looked at it, they said, well, there's some benefit, but there's some real harms. There's overdetection, there's overtreatment, and the harms don't outweigh the benefits. They felt that the benefits of screening were small and that the harms, uh, that, that the net benefit uh, and harm ratio didn't really make it uh, appropriate to recommend screening in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, they felt we might have been doing more harm than good. And so that's how they came to where they were in 2012. You know, so a couple questions on those studies. So the PLCO study, you said a lot of patients that were in the control or non-screening arm were actually getting screened. So how does that happen in a study like that? Well, so you have to remember this study went on in the 1990s. And for, for you and I, we're old enough to remember how, what happened in the 1990s. Everyone knew about prostate cancer screening because we had this brand new test, this PSA test. And so when you're doing this study in the real world, which they were, for men who were randomized to the control arm, and they knew that which arm they were randomized to, they would go off on their own and get PSA tests because they were concerned about it. And if you look at the studies, you know, uh, even the PLCO group themselves said over the trial period, you had 
a mean number of five routine PSA tests in the screening arm and 2.7 in the control arm. Three-fourths of the men in the control arm had at least one PSA test because everyone knew about it. The task force looks at this and says, well, you're looking at a study of organized versus opportunistic screening. But I just think it's a study of a lot of screening. And there was a study that came out uh, in New England Journal of Medicine last year from the group of Cornell. And they had a comment I think is worth uh, 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 just um, uh, putting out there. In the study, they, in their discussion, they basically said when both groups are surveyed with the health surveys questionnaire, so they, they asked the patients in both arms of the uh, study. Men in the control arm reported having more cumulative testing, uh, PSA testing, than men in the intervention arm. So this really isn't a great study, and that's how that uh, played out that way, Vic. And how about in the uh, ERSPC study, what is the the thought as to why at that one site in, uh, in, in Goatborg they had such a high uh, detection rate. So that's a great question, and there are a lot of different thoughts as to why that might have occurred. Um, one is that each site had a different screening protocol. In many regards, your SPC is more like a meta-analysis than a true randomized clinical trial, because although patients were an- randomized at each site, each site did their, it a little differently. The age they started, the age they ended. Um, uh, you know, the threshold for biopsy. So in that regard, um, what you're looking at here is you're looking at, um, you know, different uh, uh, protocols. And so perhaps that had something to do with it. The other thing that I think is worth thinking about is there's different baseline risk between, say, Scandinavian men and French men and Italian men. And in that regard, that also plays into it. The third possibility, and I think this is a real possibility too, is that there are differences in the way men are treated between, say, Gothenburg and Rotterdam and France and Spain and Italy. So those three sort of variables uh, likely played into the difference in the effectiveness of screening uh, between Gothenburg and the other sites. So it seems like at least with the available data that we have, while it's plentiful, none of it's perfect. That's correct. And it's a little bit like the blind man and the elephant. You you really have to take the entire body of evidence and think it through to make a decision. And that's where um, I think the USPSTF, in certain regards, put blinders on in 2012, only looking at the two studies and not looking at everything else in total. So I'm curious, uh, and I suspect our audience is as well, is what made them change uh, the recommendation from a D to a C. You mentioned that that's a, uh, you know, that's a huge change. Did they take the blinders off? Well, to some degree. It's, it's, it's one of these situations where you have uh, a whole lot of science and perhaps just as much politics. You asked before about what the impact of the recommendation was, and the impact was very immediate and was really profound. And there's some debate about what exactly uh, occurred, but there are certain things which no one's arguing. The first thing that I think no one is arguing is that the incidence of prostate cancer in the United States has dropped since 2012. And it actually drops relatively precipitously around 2013 and 2014 if you look at SEER data. Now, it was already dropping to some degree because I think uh, people were screening less already, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the recommendation was such a draconian recommendation that you had this tremendous drop. And, uh, you know, with that in mind, people start saying, wow, if we're not picking these cases up, we're going to start to see changes in metastatic disease. 
and the incidence of metastatic disease at presentation is going to start to rise. And that's a very controversial topic. There are some studies that show that it did rise, some studies that show it didn't. And these studies are actually from the same data sets, which shows you how important it is to do the, the research properly. But in the end, I think that really started to, to make the task force realize, oh, my gosh, um, we may be on the line for this if it turns out that these urologists are correct. So you got a little bit of politics there. And then the other things that happen is uh, the task force routinely reviews its recommendations every five years. And th this time when they went back, they took two things into account. Number one is they said, well, we're not just going to look at death from prostate cancer. We're going to look at other endpoints which are clinically meaningful. And specifically, they looked at the metastatic disease because they said sometimes it takes 10 to 20 years from the diagnosis to actually die of prostate cancer, and other things happen in the interim which affect the patient's health. So they looked at the incidence of metastatic disease and the number of cases, the number of, of cancer cases needed to detect to prevent cases of metastatic disease, and that was three per 1,000 men screened. And they said, that's a benefit, and it's a, it's a bigger benefit than they appreciated before. And that data comes from ERSPC. Now, was that information out there before? Yes, it was. But this time, they sort of broadened their horizon. The other thing, and I think this is to the credit of our specialty in particular, I'm really, uh, I, I, mean, I say this sincerely, I'm very proud of our specialty for recognizing that we were over-treating prostate cancer. And if you look over the last five years, um, the incidence, or pardon me, the utilization of active surveillance and low-risk disease in the United States has gotten way up. So instead of taking every man we see to an operating room or a radiation vault, you all just start saying, look, sir, you have low-risk disease. This may not be a clinically significant disease. Let's watch you very closely and only treat you if you start to show signs that this is a clinically more aggressive tumor than originally advertised. So the task force was very aware of this and said, look, that changes the math. It reduces one of the harms of screening, which is over-treatment, profoundly, and that really makes the balance quite different. The last thing that they don't like to acknowledge, but I think we should acknowledge, is there was real pressure from advocacy groups, from the AUA, from other groups, for them to reconsider their recommendation and to recognize that perhaps they've been a little bit too harsh in 2012. And there was political pressure brought uh, upon them from a number of different circles that uh, really forced them to sort of change their approach to the question, if you want my opinion. Um, so I think in the end, USPSDF made the right choice, at least for men age uh, 50 to 70 uh, in this particular recommendation. So now we still have uh, from them a D recommendation in men over 70. So I might say, what, it, what do we do, first of all, with men over 70? And then more specifically, if we think of, well, let's say you have a man who is you know, reached his early 70s and, uh, you know, he, maybe he had a rising PSA as he was screened in his 60s. Not enough to get you to concerned at the moment, but something at that moment, but something to say, gee, you know, this is somebody I, I want to continue to follow. Or what about men with a family history of prostate cancer or groups that we know are at increased risk like African-American men? So let's 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 parse that out into two separate questions because it's easier to do it that way. Let's talk about the men over age 70, and then we can talk about the men with high-risk disease. 
So, you know, if you look at this, the task force recommend gave screening in men over age 70 a D. And they did this in part looking back to a very old study, the SPCG4 study, which was a Scandinavian study of treatment comparing surgery to observation. And that was in the pre-PSA era. And what it basically showed was in men over age 65, it didn't make a difference. Uh, there was no difference in survival between surgery and watchful waiting. And they said, look, in men over age 65, you know, prostate cancer, even in its most aggressive form, is often not a very fast-growing cancer. It may be clinically meaningful with enough years. But, you know, if you're 70, 72 years old, and you have a six- or seven-year life expectancy, that may you may not realize any benefit from screening or treatment. So that's how they came to that uh, conclusion. And neither of the screening trials, the PLC or ERSBC, include a mental rate 70. So that's how they got there. And I'm not sure they're completely wrong. If you read below the line and you go into their text, they do make a comment about, you know, some men over age 70 may be, you know, particularly healthy and there may be a benefit for those men. But in the aggregate, and I think that's one of the problems we always has, have as clinicians, is balancing sort of the population view versus the individual view. In the, ad, in the aggregate, they really felt that screening in men over age 70 probably didn't make a whole lot of sense because for a man at age 72 or 73, his life expectancy is not going to be 20 or 30 years on average, certainly not 30 years. And that's certainly consistent with the AUA guidelines as well, remember. The AUA guidelines didn't endorse screening men over age 70 and specifically stated uh, that, you know, it was all about life expectancy. Now, the guidelines did say that some men over age 70 who are particularly healthy, who perhaps you were following them previously and have more than a 10-year life expectancy are going to get a benefit. And in that setting, there was, you know, a recommendation around shared decision-making. But because we don't have strong randomized clinical trial evidence in this space, it's hard to make a real strong sort of um, uh, endorsement of screening. And, and really, frankly, by the same token, not so easy to make an endorsement against, although, you know, we have to be thinking, you know, what's common sense? Um, what I will tell providers and what I do in my practice is if I see a fellow who's over age 70 and who uh, is, is relatively healthy and has more than 10-year life expectancy, then that's someone who I'll talk about and say, look, there may be a benefit to screening. Um, uh, it's not a slam dunk quite like it was when you were 52 or 53, in my opinion. And so we should talk about it. In the example you gave, um, the fellow who I've been following his PSA for some time, again, if he's not very healthy, I'm going to stop because we know that PSA screening uh, has a you know lead time of about 10 years. So I'm not going to do him a whole heck of a lot of good if he's going to die of a heart attack in five years. But, you know, if he's otherwise relatively healthy, I'm going to keep doing his PSA screening. As far as the other group, the second question you brought up about men at higher risk, um, African-American men, men with a strong family history, we have really no good evidence in those patients. Um, you know, the clinical trials really don't have enough numbers of those groups to make any conclusions. Now, that being said, if we go back to what we were talking about before, we say, well, maybe one of the reasons why Gothenburg was so effective was because the risk was higher, the baseline risk was higher, it follows in my mind that the guys I want to screen for are the guys who are at greatest risk for having clinically significant disease, because those are the guys who, if I catch them a little earlier, I may be able to change the outcome of their disease. And so 
for men with a strong family history of prostate cancer or African-American men, in my opinion, and it really is a lot of opinion, those are the guys who I talk to and I say, if ever there was someone who's going to garner a benefit from a PSA test, it's you, sir, and you should think about this, acknowledging that there are some real risks to this test and some downsides. But we don't have really strong guidance. I think clinicians have to discuss this with patients, and they have to do shared decision-making as to the right thing to do. So as we uh, finish up here on that topic of shared decision-making, if we have patients who wish to be screened, how or are there ways or how can we optimize the benefit and minimize the harms of screening? So that's a really great question. I think this is where our field is going now. I think we have to get beyond the sort of should we screen and should we not screen and get to this point where we're starting to think about the best way to screen. Traditionally, we've had a one-size-fits-all approach where we said, all right, starting at age, say, 50, for a little while, I was age 40. Let's check your PSA every year, and, you know, if it's above a certain level, usually 4.0, you need a biopsy. I think we have to get away from that one-size-fits-all and start to personalize screening, and there are ways to do this. To start with, annual PSA screening may not be the best approach for everybody. If you look at the AUA guidelines, they suggest screening every other year. Uh, as a potential strategy. And now we're starting to, and that's what Gothenburg used, by the way. So clearly, the study which shows the greatest benefit did not use annual screening. If you look at some other um, topics which are coming out these days, uh, uh, publications coming out, and again, these are all opinion, but um, uh, they're, they're pretty good opinion from some pretty smart people. People are saying, look, maybe you need to tailor your your um, your, your screening strategy based on the so in other words, if my PSA as a 51-year-old man is three, maybe I need a biopsy right there, but I certainly need to be screened again sooner rather than later. On the other hand, if my PSA is, say, 0.1, then I probably don't need to be screened for five years. So we can tailor the screening intervals based on a baseline PSA, and probably that baseline PSA, if you look at the literature, will be taken uh, for all men in their 40s. Um, and there's some lovely articles from uh, the group at Memorial, among others, from the group in Seattle um, that talk about different screening strategies. The other things we have going on uh, beyond sort of adjusting thresholds by age, adjusting screening intervals, is prostate MR. Now, the role of this is clearly evolving. We're not, we're not, it's not clear the best way to use this yet, but there's no doubt in my mind that MR imaging is going to play an important role in PSA, uh, in prostate cancer screening. As an adjunct to PSA testing, you could see a time when people get a PSA and it's mildly elevated. Before they immediately do a biopsy, they do a prostate MR, and based on the MR, they decide whether or not to biopsy, and if they do biopsy, where they biopsy. Now, you know, like I said, it's still evolving. There's variation from uh, radiologist to radiologist, so we really need to standardize that a little more. But we've really come a long way with prostate MR, so imaging is very promising. And urologists have certainly uh, endorsed this. There are other biomarkers coming down the pike, and I have no ties to any of the companies, so uh, so I can say objectively that there's probably one may or may not be better than another. Who the heck knows? 
at this point in the game, but there's certainly a lot of uh, evidence out there. Things like the 4K score, the Prostate Health Index. People have talked about the PSA3 test. There are a number of other tests out there, and they may provide additional information and help identify men who may or may not need to be biopsied. And I think these are going to play an increasing role in the future, again, I think as an adjunct to uh, you know total PSA. The last piece worth mentioning is we're starting to understand that genetics plays an important role here. And specifically, there are some genes out there which are probably tied to high-risk prostate cancer. The best example is the BRCA2 gene. And we know about this gene from breast cancer. Um, we know that it's uh, you know that it's associated with the development of various cancers. I think people are going to start using these this concept of genetic counseling, particularly in high-risk patients, more and more. And it's going to help us to tailor our screening strategies. The bottom line to all this is that we're going to get away from the see you next year, sir, your PSA is above four, let's do a biopsy, to, oh, your PSA was low last year, this time around, I won't see you for three, four years. Your PSA is high, let's get another test, let's uh, see you back sooner rather than later. Um, and, and I think in the end, we're going to get into this personalized approach to screening, which follows with the rest of medicine, which is getting more and more personalized in its approach. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, that very comprehensive review of PSA screening and particularly the uh, USPSTF recommendations. Uh, I certainly have uh, learned a lot about the process. Uh, I'm sure our audience uh, has as well. Um, I think at the end of the day, we as urologists are just trying to do what we think is the best for our patients, uh, and I think that uh, the information that you've provided here certainly uh, gives us a, a good basis uh, to do that. I also want to thank our audience for listening. Uh, we uh, do enjoy bringing these podcasts to you, and we hope that you will continue uh, to listen to uh, our future podcasts. For more information, you can visit www. AUANet.org slash university. Thank you very much.